If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. If you were with us a few weeks ago, that last Sunday in June, we actually started the story of Gideon. Uh, and hopefully I will get as close to finishing it today. Uh, but if you weren't with us for that sermon, this one will stand alone and make sense. I was ready to move into Judges 7 and 8 and finish the story of Gideon, but I, I saw something in Gideon in Judges chapter 6, and I just felt led to address uh, what I saw because it's something that is so widespread in our culture today. And what I saw in Gideon that I see in us is cynicism. Uh, that idea uh, that the dictionary will tell you uh, that it means to be cynical is to distrust or to disparage the motives of others, to show contempt for accepted standards of honesty or morality. If you talk to the cynic, the cynic will tell you that if you will expect the worst, then you'll never be disappointed. It's kind of what the cynic says. The cynic believes that most people are insincere and are acting for their own selfish gain. And so the cynic assumes that, that pretense and that scams are the norm. And as a result, a cynic never fully gives their heart to anyone or anything because they're not going to be fooled by what's really going on here. The cynic thrives on sarcasm, which they use to keep folks at arm's length. And that dry sense of humor becomes the way that they interact with the world. I was talking to somebody and I said, I see so much cynicism in Gideon, and I feel led to talk about that. And they said to me, well, I, I, I see him as, as afraid. You know the Midianites we saw last time were coming in, they'll take their food, they, they swarm the place with camels, this new technology of the time, and, and he's, he's threshing grain in a wine press, which is something you would normally do outside. And so this person said, I, I think Gideon's more afraid. And I said, I think you're exactly right. I do think that fear is at work here because underneath cynicism is really fear, right? We're, we're cynical because we're afraid we're going to be taken advantage of. We're afraid that we will be fooled. We're afraid of looking stupid in front of the whole world and we don't want to be a sucker. So we get cynical. In fact, I would say that cynicism usually exists because we've been fooled or we've been hurt in the past and we're afraid that it may happen again. What's the old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And the cynic says, you're not going to fool me twice. I learned the first time. And so we learn not to trust, to always assume the worst. I see this cynicism in Gideon, and I have been praying that as we talk about Gideon, perhaps you would see some cynicism and perhaps underneath that fear in your own heart. And I've really been praying that as we see how God relates to cynical people like Gideon, 
to cynical people like us that we would see his patience and his mercy and his grace with cynical people. So let me read for us perhaps the most famous part of the story of Gideon, Judges 6, verses 36 to 40, and we'll jump in and look at these things together. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry all around, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out dew from the fleece enough uh, to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only in all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to see the cynicism and the fear in Gideon, and more importantly, help us to see it in our own hearts. But Father, I pray that you would also open our eyes to see your patience and your grace, and your mercy towards cynical people like Gideon, towards cynical people like us. And I ask that you'd be willing to show us this, even through the preaching of your word, even this hour, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Do you see Gideon's cynicism? Is that just something I'm reading into the text, or do you see it in there too? I see it pretty clearly in a few areas. The first place I see it is is right there in verse 36. He's cynical about God's promises. He's cynical about God's promises. God has told him several times. He's already done one miracle for him and consumed the meal uh, from the end of the staff. He's already done some miraculous things. And Gideon is cynical about God's promises. You see it there in verse 36 where he says, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, if that's really true. You hear the cynicism in his voice. He's cynical about the promises of God. Second of all, I would say he's cynical about God's provision. God's already done one miracle for him and he comes and asks him to do another one. And so then God answers his request. He has the fleece. He has dew only on the fleece and not on the ground around it. So much dew that he can wring out the water into a bowl. And Gideon says, okay, sure, that happened. There are probably a million explanations for how that happened. Sure, you seemingly answered what I asked you to do, but there must be some trick to this. 
So let me ask it a different way. You see, the cynic always finds reasons not to trust what they see, even their own senses, and they often will shift positions to play a different game with God or with the people around them. I see his cynicism in God's provision. We saw that first week, his cynicism with God's presence. Do you remember? All the way up in Genesis 6 and verse 12, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, Gideon. The Lord is with you. And do you remember what Gideon said in verse 13? Listen to what he said. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our forefathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon had been to Sunday school. He had been taught by his parents about all the great things God had done, miraculous things, freeing them from their slavery in Egypt, bringing them out with wondrous signs. And when Gideon hears, the Lord is with you, he says, how can that be? Where are all those great signs he did for our forefathers? (laughs) If God's really with us, then why are we under the hand of the Midianites? Hear the cynicism when he's told of God's presence, God is with you, and he's cynical in his response. I see his cynicism in his response to God's promises to God's provision of several miracles, to his being told of God's presence with him, we see his cynicism. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I want to be clear. I think his cynicism is understandable, right? It makes sense. Gideon is an oppressed man. If he grows any crops, the Midianites come and just take it away from him, right? There seems to be no truth. There's no justice in his world. It seems like there's no justice at all. It seems like no one is standing for what is right. In fact, the book of Judges tells us that everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. So it seems to Gideon like there's no overarching truth that governs all of life. It seems like there's no protection at all from harm. And so his cynicism makes sense. He has real reasons to fear being taken advantage of. You know, we're often like Gideon, aren't we? You hear it in the spirit of the age. Maybe you hear it in your own heart. We have real reasons to fear being taken advantage of. We have real reasons for using sarcasm and cynicism to protect our own hearts. We've got real reasons. It's not made up. We're not just bitter people, right? For many of us, We go to weddings, we see marriages where people stand up before God and their family and their witnesses and they promise to be faithful to each other until death do us part. And more often than not, they are not faithful to one another. More often than not, they do not stay together until death separates them. For many of us, 
we look to parents who should protect us, who should provide for us, who should be present with us. And our, our parents fail us in many of those things. And then as we look to relatives who should be there for us, for some of us, we have relatives that, that, that more than, than, than providing or protecting or being present, we have relatives that take advantage of us. Maybe you've prayed for good things from God, things that make sense, and we don't see them come about the way we would want them to, so we choose cynicism as a way of life in order to guard our hearts, right? We've seen so much bad stuff, we just come to expect it. And we tell ourselves and we tell one another, listen, if you just expect the worst, you'll never be disappointed. Like, what are you, a Braves fan or something? We learn to live that way, all those championships and only one World Series. It's tough, I understand. We're going to find a way to lose. I understand the attitude. I understand Gideon's cynicism. And I understand the cynicism in this generation, in this culture in which we live. And I understand why we would use cynicism as a way to cope with life. Just to, to have that outlook so that I'm not disappointed. I'm not going to get fooled. We use cynicism to guard our hearts. But I want you to understand this morning. That that same cynicism that we use to guard our hearts, it ends up killing our hearts. I understand cynicism for a while as a response to hurt, but if we don't process those hurts, if we don't grieve them like we should and we adopt cynicism as a way of life, it stunts our growth. We shrivel up as people, our hearts shrivel up. We are less than what God made us to be when we choose cynicism as a way of life. How does that work? Why would you say that? Well, let me explain it to you. See if it rings true for you. Lisa and I, I feel like, have really ministered to a lot of cynical people lately. It seems to be the spirit of our age. And as we've shared the gospel, and worked with very cynical people, what I, the best way I know to describe it is I see these inconsistent doubts in them. What do I mean by inconsistent doubts? Here's what I mean. The cynic will fully trust his senses when anything wrong or bad happens. If they see anything dark or ugly, if there's anything that is hard or insincere, whoo, pretense, they sniff that out, right? And they say, yeah, I saw that coming. I knew it was too good to be true. If they see anything broken, anything unjust, they, they trust their senses on that. Yep, I saw that coming. I see it. There it is. You're not fooling me. They will trust what they see and what they hear. They'll trust their senses if anything bad is happening. But there are inconsistent doubts. Because if anything seems good or wholesome, 
If anything shows true beauty or shows true promise, if there is anything that is true or right, the cynic says, that can't be. They don't trust their senses. They see it. It is right there in front of them, but they doubt it. They say, that can't be because that is not the way the world works. I know what I see. I know the water's on the fleece and not on the ground, but there's got to be some trick to that because that's just not how life works. If you really press them, they'll say, okay, yeah, that looks kind of true, but it's sort of cheesy. It's sort of phony. I still have my doubts. Even though I can't see it, I still have my doubts. I struggle with the cynic because they will never doubt their doubts, right? Why don't you doubt your doubts like you, like you go against something that's good? Why don't you cross-examine your doubts like you cross-examine the good stuff that you see? But there are these inconsistent doubts. The cynic will tell you, look, i got to be real, right? I'm just being honest with you. What do they say? They say, we've got to be authentic. And I understand. They say, listen, I don't want to be trite. I don't want to be superficial. I'm tired of the pretense. And I understand that many of us grew up in a culture, maybe you even grew up in a church where we pretended like everything was okay and didn't acknowledge the dysfunction that was there. And you're tired of it. And you want to point that out. I understand the sentiment. But let me ask you a question. Can you be equally real? Can you be equally authentic? Can you be equally honest about things that are good? Think about that. Can you be real about true beauty, about real promise? Can you be non-trite when it comes to true friendship, to true loyalty? Can you be non-trite when we talk about that? Can you avoid being superficial if we talk about sex and sexuality the way God designed it to be? Can you be non-superficial as we talk about things like true beauty, as we discuss something that brings deep joy? Do you believe that can exist? Is that a real category for you? And listen, I know it's so hard. We trust we're right about everything because we've seen so much that is broken and messed up and so much that is bad that we just believe that the whole world is that way because we've seen so much of it and we won't trust anything that is good because in our experience, it doesn't seem to exist. Now listen, church, with that kind of worldview, if that's your worldview that I've seen so much bad stuff, how can I believe there's anything good? What hope is there for that person to have real faith? That's a big stretch we call people to. If you are a cynic and you're here today and you're hearing what I'm saying, it's like, yeah, he's right about a lot of what he's saying, but you know, I don't know about this accepting the good, right? Let me ask you, with your worldview, if you doubt everything, how hard is it to have real 
hope. What chances are there to find true self-sacrificial love in the world? And you see, your cynicism may protect you from scams and shams and phonies, but your cynicism has no power to cultivate faith or hope or love in your life. You can say, I don't want to get burned, I don't want to get taken, but don't you see you're already being taken? The faith, the hope, the love, it's already been taken from your life by your cynicism. The hopes for true joy, for true love, those things have already been taken from you by your cynicism, and you were a smaller person as the result of it. Many times, faith or hope or love can be right in front of you and you just can't see it. Or you see it and you can't find a flaw in it, but you won't accept it. You won't believe it's really there even when you see it with your own eyes. I call you to doubt your doubts. Many cynical folks I've talked to at this point, here's what they usually say. Well, if God appeared to me and did a miracle and spoke to me, then I'd believe too, but that hadn't happened, so I'm just going to stay right here with my experience and where I've been. I understand that. I often wish God would appear and talk to me. But if that's what you're thinking, let me just point something out to you from the text, okay? God has appeared to Gideon in the person of the angel of the Lord and then is referred to as the Lord himself, probably a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's appeared as a physical manifestation to Gideon. Gideon has heard the very voice of God. Gideon has seen not just one miracle, but at least three at this point. And Gideon still struggles to believe. He still struggles to accept what's right in front of him because that's what cynicism does in our hearts. It keeps us from seeing the good even when it's right in front of us. So don't be fooled by that voice in your head that says, well, if I saw this, I'd believe too. Gideon saw it and he still struggled to believe. I want us to see how God responds to people who are cynical like Gideon. I want us to see God's patience and his grace towards cynical people like Gideon and like us. How does God respond? The first response I see here is his covenant love. We are in our call to worship. Remind us of the covenant love of God that continues for a thousand generations. So when the Lord shows up and he says, Gideon, the Lord is with you in chapter 6 and verse 12. And you heard Gideon's cynical response. If all this bad stuff's happened, then how can you say God is with us? But God has said the Lord is with you. Listen, that is covenant language. 
Those are covenant promises. God had said, look, I'm going to make you my people, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to be with you. And he says, when he says, the Lord is with you, he is saying, Gideon, I'm keeping my covenant promises. Those promises that I made to your forefathers, I'm keeping them with you, Gideon. I'm keeping them. I'm keeping my promises. I'm with you. And Gideon, in his cynicism, says, how can that be true? Because all this bad stuff is going on. And God says, I know you're cynical. And I know that you doubt that people keep their promises. But I'm with you, Gideon. I get it, you're not with me, but I am with you. And the Lord is so patient. And he's so persistent. He says, Gideon, I know you might be giving up on me. You might be getting up, giving up on what you learned in Sunday school. But I'm not giving up on you, Gideon. He says, the Lord is with you. And then he reminds Gideon of his identity. He calls him, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, who is hiding in the winepress from the Midianites. O man of valor. I read some commentators who said that the Lord is being sarcastic here. And I'm like, That's, I've got to preach on this. Because that's wrong. God's not being cynical. He's not finding a man who's afraid and hiding in the closet and just being sarcastic. He's going, oh, man of valor. That's us reading our hearts into the text. This is God reminding Gideon of who he is. The Lord is with you, and you are mighty when the Lord is with you. You're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. This is God reminding Gideon of who he is. And he's so patient as he does over and over again what Gideon asks him to do because Gideon is so full of fear and of cynicism. And he consumes the food with the staff. He puts the dew on the fleece and, and then he does the ground only and not on the fleece. God is so patient and sticks with Gideon even though Gideon doesn't trust God. And think about what God says to him. If you keep reading, verse 14, the Lord turns to him after he was so cynical and says, go in this might, this might that you learned from your forefathers, this might that delivered you from Egypt, go in this might and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Gideon, verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm a, I'm a part of the smallest clan, and within the smallest clan, we're the smallest family, and I'm like the smallest one in that. Lee Taylor and I would laugh at this point and say, ain't God like that? <laughs> Doesn't he like using people like that? Verse 16, the Lord said to him, but, he's saying, yes, you're the smallest, yes, you're being oppressed, yes, it doesn't make sense, but I will be with you, 
and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Think about what he's saying here, right? He's reminded him of his covenant promises. He's reminded him of his identity. And what is he saying when he says, I'm going to use you to, to strike the Midianites? He's saying evil will be judged. He's saying oppression will end. He's reminding him that good will triumph over evil, that all things good and things that bring joy, that things that are beautiful will be restored. He's saying, getting there is an overarching truth that rules the universe. You may not have seen it, but it's true. And, and, I'm going to use you to bring it about. I'm going to use you. God is saying, Gideon, you have meaning. You have a purpose. Oh, Gideon, you're a part of something that is so much bigger than yourself. You're a part of something that's so much bigger than your generation. Don't you see, Gideon? Don't you see I'm with you? The cynic in us at this point says, that's awesome. He's all emotional. He's preaching. And then I'm sure Gideon just said, yes, God, I will believe in you. And then they live happily ever after. That's the way the cynic would imagine that this ends. <laughs> Ooh, no. Read chapter 7. You want to be real? You want to be authentic? You want to be honest? Come on, let's go. Because the Bible is so real and so authentic and so honest because Judges 7 and 8 shows that this conquering that he does is hard work. And there are losses and there are casualties. And that Gideon's still afraid. He still struggles to believe. And God doesn't work the way Gideon thinks that he should work. And God still works through him. And then when Gideon, even after he's victorious, listen, he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> Read about Gideon in, 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 in Judges 8. He's not a very nice guy. Yet God is so faithful to his covenant promises. Listen, God is big enough to handle your cynicism. And I don't know what you were taught in the church or taught growing up. We're going to do Samson in a few weeks, and we were laughing this morning saying, you probably didn't hear the whole story of Samson in Sunday school, right? We don't tell the whole story. But don't judge God in the Bible by your church that burned you or by what you learned in Sunday school. Come to the Bible itself. Let's just look and see what it says. Let's keep going. Judges 7, verse 2. He was out a week, and he's going to go long, right? We'll be out before noon. Don't worry. I'm going to get you to the buffet before the Baptist. It's all right. I know how this one ends. Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. <laughs> what? Gideon has finally believed God. He's gathered this army of 32,000 men, and the Lord says, oh, yeah, Gideon, about the 32,000-man army. I know the Midianites have more. They're more numerous than the sand. I know there are a ton of them. They have superior technology. But uh, you got too many men. Because if I let you win with 32,000 men, you're going to say, hey, I delivered, I did this on my own, Right? 
I, I did this myself. And I'm not going to let you do that. Your humility is more important to me than you being a hero. Ouch. How's that cynicism? I hate hearing that. I want to be the hero. God says, I'm not going to allow that. And look at what he says. Verse 3, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people return and 10,000 remain. You just lost two-thirds of your army. Gone. Okay. He was afraid before. What are you going to do now, God? Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. 10,000, that's still too many. What? Are you kidding me? God says, take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So we brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go every man to his home. Send them home. That's what they do. 32,000 to 300. 99% of them are now gone. Gideon, under his great godly leadership, has already lost 31,700 men. <laughs> Let me just ask you, cynical folks, if you hired a manager to run your church or your army or your business and they ran off 99% of the employees, you lost 99% of your profits, 99% just leaves, would you keep that manager? No. God's crazy. This is unreal. This is hard to believe. Listen to me. When you begin to follow God, it's probably not going to look like you thought it was going to. And I say probably to be nice. It's probably not going to look the way you think it should look. God seldom shows his power in ways we want him to show his power. God typically demonstrates his strength in our weakness. Now why would he do that? This was the key. This is where the, the penny fell for me this week. I was like, why is he doing this? Why would he do it this way? Well, because they will be, uh, think that they did it if, the Lord, if there are too many of them and the Lord wants to get the credit. Yes, that's why, but why? Why does he do that? God could draw a huge army and rout the Midianites if that's what he wanted to do. He could do it that way. But think about that. If God did it that way, the cynical would just get more cynical, right? they just say, well, that's what I told you, might makes right. But of course, they had all the power. And of course, now they're just enforcing the rules because they've got the most power. Whoever has the power calls the shots, told you. Of course, that's the way it is. 
We're cynical of big, slick productions with all the bling. And if you're cynical of that, let me just tell you, God typically does not work that way. God works in, in small ways. God's strength typically comes in our weakness. And Gideon had this idea of how God should show his power, and God is just not going to work that way. And you're never going to believe it. Gideon's scared. He's afraid. Of course he is, going in with 300 people. And how do you think God responds to Gideon when he's afraid? You coward. You're such a weenie. I've already done like four miracles for you, and you want another one? Wah. You're a crybaby. Listen, you may have had parents, or you may have had teachers, or you may have had coaches, or you may have had bosses that responded to you in that way. And so maybe you expect God to respond to you in that way, because that's all you've ever seen. That's all you've ever known. That's all you've seen in authority. Are those the authority, or maybe those are the authorities that have made the most impression on you? I want you to see what God does. I want you to see his patience and his mercy. Look at verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Verse 10, But, but if you are afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go against the camp. Then he, Gideon, went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. Somebody should write a song. I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. Are you kidding? Are you making this stuff up? No, that's what it says. It's verse 14. A man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Finally, yes. He finally surrenders to God. And he worships him. Look, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Who is this guy? He's a man who's been transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. He's not perfect, but he's a man whose God has come to again and again and again and again to reassure. And then he moves him into service of that God. So how does God move cynical people like Gideon, cynical people like us from cynicism to worship and then to his service? You may be here and you're cynical about what I'm saying right now. But all this stuff that I'm telling you, listen to me. Give me one more shot. All I can say is this. God is so patient with you 
and your heart and your doubts and your disbelief. And he wants you to experience all that is good. He wants to move in your heart so that you can have faith. So that you can actually have hope. So that you can experience love. He wants you to see and experience and enjoy what is good and what is wholesome. He wants you to believe real promises. And he even wants to use you to establish in this broken and messed up world things that are true and are right. And to do so, God reminds us of his covenant love. I am with you. He reminds us of our identity, O mighty one of valor, not in a mocking way, but because God knows how he made you and what he can do in you and through you, and it's beyond anything you can imagine. He reminds us of his intention. He is going to make all things right. Oppression will cease. All rights, all wrongs will be righted. And he reminds us that in his plan, we have a part to play. <laughs> he doesn't need us. He dignifies us by allowing us to be a part of what he is doing. And in his patience and his persistence in pursuing us, he reminds us that we're not in control. That we don't get to do it the way we want to do it. And that we're not going to get the credit. And he reminds us that he does not usually work the way we want him to do, but that his ways are perfect. And listen, when we see that, when we see God for who he really is and really begin to accept that, to own that, oh, listen to me, then we move from being cynical about God to being worshipers of God. And we're able to see and experience what is good and true we're able to have faith and hope and love and to be used God, by God to establish what is true and right in this world. Let's pray and ask God to work in that way in this place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, our hearts are so cynical. And underneath that is a fear that we're going to look stupid or we're going to be taken advantage of. I just pray for my own heart. I pray for the hearts of my friends. That you would meet us in our cynicism and in our doubt and in our fear. And that you would show up, oh Lord, please be so patient with us like you were with Gideon. Please be persistent, you know we're prone to wander. Father, we will leave this place and forget this sermon. We'll forget these prayers, but our hope is not in our remembering. Oh God, our hope is in your faithfulness. So please, I beg of you to pursue us. Do not give up on your people. Be at work in us. And be pleased to work through us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.